The Spatial Jam, an Esri UK podcast. Making your life a bit easier in terms of working with data. You know, sourcing data that's reliable. And then the difference between me giving up, throwing my laptop out the window. The styles such as like the pencil style or the newspaper style. And I found that they're really good for um, community engagement. Just adding those in from the Living Atlas can really make such a difference. Anything where you would traditionally search by distance, but actually searching by time gives you much more relevant results. Welcome to the Spatial Jam. I'm Beth and today I'm joined by Eleni. Hi everyone. We've got a very special episode today, which is all about content. And it's not just myself and Eleni today. We have two special guests with us. First up, we have Liz. Hi, everyone. I'm Liz de Guzman, and I am the data curator, and I'm really excited to be here today. And we also have Hannah. Hi, my name's Hannah Fieldsend, and I work within the content team at Ezra UK. As an added bonus, at the end of this episode, I got the chance to interview Chris from Travel Time, one of our data partners. Great. So as Eleni said, today's Spatial Jam is all about spatial data. So something often referred to as the fuel for the ArcGIS system. But as regular listeners will know, we're less about cars and more about cake on this podcast. So I'd prefer to liken it to the jam in the GIS cake. Now, Eleni, any other metaphors you like to use? Yeah, I would say data is more the base of the cake, right? It's the first thing that you use in GIS. It's the first thing that you have to wrestle with in any kind of GIS workflow to get to the jam, which is then the map output, in my opinion. (laughs) But we could probably sit here all day talking about different metaphors. Yeah, that's really true. We could probably spend all day talking about cake as well. (laughs) So let's move on. Um, So data is different things to different people. Eleni, what does it actually mean to you? Guess. Data is something that in my role as a GIS analyst and a GIS consultant, it is the foundation of everything that I do. But really what data means for me is the difference between trying to actually be able to answer a question and answer it accurately. And then the difference between me giving up, throwing my laptop out the window and not actually (laughs) trying with it anymore. Simply because I think anyone who is a GIS uh, user will know that a lot of their time is often spent wrangling with data, trying to get it into a format that is um, right for GIS, but also make sure that it's accurate. For me, it's it is that base to the cake of the of the GIS cake is absolutely fundamental, and being able to have the skills not as just as a GIS person, but also as a data engineer or as a data analyst is actually critical in in that role uh, in GIS. Yes, that's so true. Hannah, any thoughts of, on what Eleni's saying? Yeah, definitely. So personally, data to me means, you know, my personal data from apps on my phone and things and stuff that third party companies get about me. And when we're talking about spatial data, those two things aren't necessarily disconnected. Um, there's loads of different types. We're not just talking about environmental and, and utilities and things. There's demographic data, physical location of devices on the ground, spending habits, and all of this can be used in GIS. So, Eleni, you know, you talk about data wrangling and you know how it can be annoying and make you want to throw your laptop out the window, which I don't recommend, by the way. <laughs> um, but what are some of the things that you've learned over the years about making your life a bit easier in terms of working with data? 
it's been trial by fire, I think, sometimes being able to first think about the challenge that I'm trying to approach and then obviously finding the right data sets for it. And once that first step has been overcome, which is often the most challenging part, even just finding the data, um, it's then about using the tools that I have available to me, try and simplify that data set or put it in a format that um, ArcGIS can read. And a lot of the tools that I use actually are simple tools that a lot of us have on our laptops anyway. So Excel is a great tool. I might do a little bit of work just to make the field names a bit nicer, making sure, you know, they've they've all got capital letters, no spaces, no weird special characters. And once I've done all of that, if I'm positive that that data set has all the information I need to then answer that challenge or that problem I'm trying to solve, then I'll bring it in. Sometimes, however, it does mean I have to calculate additional fields. So I might want to add in a couple of rows or columns to capture that actually in GIS itself. And doing that in Excel can actually speed that process up really, really quickly. So when you bring it into like Arches Pro, for example, it's there and ready to go. It's formatted in the right way. The date fields all read as Esri date fields and it's all fine. You know, this is a huge topic to go on and it's probably an episode in itself, but Another thing to think about is once you've wrangled that data and you've got it into a, a, a usable format, using tools in Arches Pro like domains and um, attribute calculations, all of these things that maintain the data integrity, maintain the data quality when you move forwards with that data. You want to make sure that it has all those rules in place so that it's uh, maintained going forwards. And then you don't have to wrangle it every week or every month when new update made to it. So just think some things to think about there. I think that's a really good point because I think you can really overlook those initial steps and think, oh, I'll just get this in and get started with it. And then, you know, a few months down the line, you think, I really wish I'd just spent that little bit of extra time at the start because now I have to fix all of these problems. So yeah, definitely worth putting in that that work at at the start. Just to hop in there, Eleni, just with your point about, um, you know, sourcing data that's reliable. Um, I think with the growth of open data and, you know, a lot more people are sharing data now. Now that there's more open data, there's uh, more resources. So one of the resources that I use um, in my role is that the Geospatial Commission published a guidance um, and they've listed basically different geospatial themes and they've listed the data publishers that provide that data and they have an extra column and it it shows whether that data is or that data supplier is authoritative or not. It's just to make a point that there are resources out there to help people who are you know sourcing data and data wrangling. That's really cool. I'm definitely going to check that out after. Thank <laughs> you. So are there any new tools that you've been using in Pro or anywhere else in the system that have been really helping you with this work recently, Eleni? Yeah, so actually there's a few, and I guess it completely depends on the type of data set that you're using. I think the important thing to know in Arches Pro is whatever data set you're working with, Arches Pro is pretty clever in knowing what it is. Um, so if you're lurk- working with LiDAR, for example, it will bring up LiDAR classification uh, tools. If you're working with CAD data, it will bring up tools for georeferencing that CAD information, getting it into the right place. The same with CSV information. If you drop a CSV file into there, when you right click that, it has a tool to enable X, Y, uh, to add 
add X and Y points to make it a point layer. So use Arches Pro in terms of its kind of um, capability of intuitively knowing what data set you're using. But also I would suggest checking out the data engineering tools as well, not just Pro. I think it came out around 2.8. It's a very useful tool to kind of actually not just look at, you know, field names and whether they've got weird characters in there, but also look at actually the data quality itself captured in those fields, in those attributes. So yeah, those are the sorts of tools I would say use Arches Pro in its native wonderful ability to know what you're working with but also check out data engineering tools. I don't know whether I should be admitting this but I've started a game with some people at work where if you see a car edge with a data (laughs) format on the end you need to send it to the group so someone sent me a dot that that's brilliant I've got a DWG in there as well so (laughs) tons of things that can be read by Pro. There's too many the list honestly is huge. (laughs) I'm after a shape. I want SHP. (laughs) I feel like that's the holy grail. (laughs) I don't know where to go from there. So one of the new tools that I've heard about recently for Pro is that you can actually now bring in PDFs and convert them to TIFFs and put them in place. So you're georeferencing them. So you've been able to do it for a while with, you know, a normal TIFF and bring it in. So maybe you've got like a, a site plan or, you know, old historic imagery that you want to put over the top. But yeah, now you can do it with PDFs as well. And, you know, you don't have to transform everything before you can bring it in. It It's all part of the tools that are just available out of the box, which is really great. And that, that's actually a really good point, Beth, about or recognising that all of us as GIS users won't necessarily know what data sets are supported by a tool like Argus Pro. Um, and for that, I would say, if you're ever unsure, check out Esri Community, check out the documentation for Argus Pro for supported data formats, because I think you'll be pleasantly surprised with the amount of data that it does support. Um, And if it is something that you need to transform, then often there's a community of users that have already figured out the answer for you. Um, So definitely check that out. So we've been talking a lot about data sourcing and wrangling and everything, but a lot of people don't have, you know, the time, desire, you know, or the skills to actually do that themselves. And there are a lot of resources out there to help you. You know, Eleni, you've talked about some of the kind of help forums and things like that. But something that I have seen people do before is kind of go through Arches Online and see what is available there. Um, and I guess this is just a bit of a, a warning for those that are out there. Just be careful if you are looking on Arches Online because anyone that's got an Arches Online account can just post anything they want on there. So you can find some some interesting things uh, <laughs> on there, some different content. You know, some of it might be exactly what you're looking for and might be from an authoritative source. It might have all of the right information in there. It might be up to date. But at the same time, it could be something that someone has downloaded from somewhere, manipulated, um, they might have put some false information in there because they're just using it for testing. I guess it's a warning just to be sure of where you're getting your data from. And I guess that's a good point, you know, how can you actually find data that's already been processed, that someone's done all of this work for you? Um, and Liz, you're the data curator here at Esri UK. You work with the Living Atlas. Do you want to tell us a little bit about what it is and, and why does it even exist? Of course. So my role, I guess, is to basically live and breathe the Living Atlas and make sure that our users get data that is of the highest quality, that's ready to use, and it's authoritative. So Living Atlas, for those who aren't familiar with it, is basically a library of curated, authoritative, and ready-to-use data sets. Um, 
So me as Esri UK's data curator, I curate um, UK data sets that's been contributed by organizations. Um, and the great thing about Living Atlas is that it's a subset of content in ArcGIS and you can integrate it across uh, ArcGIS Online, ArcGIS Pro, um, and even some of our applications like field maps and story maps, for example. Um, and it's a really great resource that I feel not many people know about. You know, globally, we have over 10,000 items that's been shared by um, by Esri, um, our partners and the global GIS community. Uh, and, you know, each of these items has been reviewed by a data curator like myself to ensure that it's the best that it can be for for you, our users, really. Now, I love the Living Atlas. There's so much great data in there and not just data, but, you know, apps and, and things like that as well. Um, but what's new and what's what's coming up? in the future what's new so i've been trying to source more data sets of our new data contributors include the scottish government um, and also nature scott so the scottish government have recently contributed their scottish index of multiple deprivation for the year 2020 Um, and we've also welcomed nature scott who have contributed uh, their protected areas data sets so things like sites of special scientific interest national nature reserves there's so many things you can do with these new additions. And one of the things I really like as well was last year, we've made pre-trained geospatial deep learning models available. So, you know, people can now just implement this in their GIS workflows, these models that's already been pre-trained to help you identify things like building footprints um, or perhaps land cover. I think that's really great because I think you know, across both, you know, deep learning, someone could say, well, you know, I can set that up myself. That's fine. I can do it. But not everyone can. And it's also things like, you know, bringing in the sites of special scientific interest. You know, lots of people out there that are listening to this will probably be processing that. They'll be using it. But think of all the time we can save if everyone's just using that same initial source. I was going to say also really great to hear Liz um, placing focus on more regional data sets. It can only be a good thing to get more authoritative data from Scotland and Wales. So Liz, why would anyone actually contribute their data to the Living Atlas? You know, What's in it for them? For the customers and organisations I've been working with, it's just another avenue to grow access to their data. Not many people know that you know, if you have data already sitting in ArcGIS Online or in your portal, that you can actually really easily contribute it to Living Atlas. So if you're interested in contributing your data, um, visit the Living Atlas website, um, I'd say. There's lots of resources there that show you how to nominate your data. I think all of us on this podcast have used the Living Atlas a lot over the years. So what's everyone's favorite data set? You can only have one. Hey, I wasn't prepared for this. (laughs) Off the top of your head, what is your favorite? So I'm gonna go first so that no one steals it. I think mine is the new Land Cover 2020 map Classic. Uh, because it's, you know, it's it's an amazing data set. It's high resolution land cover for the whole world and it's available just with the click of a button. Eleni, how about you? Yeah, my favourite data set has to be the world traffic layer. Oh, good one. The live layer that gets updated every, I think it's every five, five minutes. or 15 minutes. It's five minutes, yeah. Um, But it's really, really cool because not only do you have that map service where you can see um, in red, amber or green the state of what traffic is like at that 
current time on a particular segment of road, but you can also see where there's live construction works going on, which in my sort of um, field that I work in is really important for um, utilities to know where construction might be going on that might prevent them from doing their own construction on, on utilities that are underground. So that's definitely my favorite one. It's a really cool data set. I hadn't even thought about that use case with that. So that's really good to hear about actually. Um, Hannah, what's your favorite? Um, probably an easy cop out, but the base maps. So some of the base maps that the Esri Inc team work on, I think it's not a lot of people use um, the styles such as like the pencil style or the newspaper style. And I found that they're really good for um, community engagement and, and stakeholder communication and things. If you're making a story map, just adding those in from the Living Atlas um, can really make such a difference with not a lot of effort. Also, one uh, really important one that they've brought out recently, it's actually a couple, is the accessible base maps. Definitely, so for yeah. people that have visual impairment or dyslexia and things like that, it's just base maps that make it easier for them to then actually understand the map and what's going on in it. So, you know, for those of us that don't have those visual impairments, maybe we don't necessarily really think about it day to day. So this base map that you can just bring in the style and just use it and just, you know, make life easier for others. Yeah, I think that's a really great inclusion that goes with yours, Hannah. Mm -hmm. And Liz, finally on to you. I'm going to be a bit rogue. So as you mentioned, Beth, earlier, the Living Atlas isn't just data layers, it's also applications. So one of my favorite things is the ArcGIS Living Atlas Indicators of the Planet application. Um, so this is an app which displays real-time information on things like wildfires or droughts, let's say. Um, and I think it's just an amazing resource where you can view sort of these indicators over time um, through things like graphs, maps, um, and you can even access resources about new research. The Living Atlas contains loads of great open data. There are some things in there that you know require credits to use. Um, but we also do have premium data that goes a little bit beyond that, you know, where things aren't necessarily available for everyone to use. They've got licensing models sitting behind them. We have solutions for that, things like Maps Plus for mapping. We have National Data Service for statistics. But we also have a lot of third party data suppliers as well that are providing us with um, maps and apps to help our customers to do you know, their everyday work and to go that little bit further. So Hannah, working in the content team, you work with our premium content partners all the time. Do you, do you have any examples of, of great things that our partners are doing at the moment? Yeah, so in my role, we work with a number of different premium data providers, third parties. Um, so TomTom, here and the OS, for example. And along with this, we work with some smaller um, content providers or ones that we're just starting a developing relationship with. So for example, Cyclomedia, have some really cool on the ground um, 360 imagery and travel time as well. They're a really cool company that we partnered with last year. So lucky for me, earlier in this week, I got the chance to catch up with Chris Hutchinson from Travel Time and he very kindly agreed to let me interview him for the podcast. Welcome, Chris. Thanks very much, Hannah. It's really nice to be here. Thank you for making the time to come along. Um, so let me start by asking you, um, what is Travel Time and what is Travel Time's content? So Travel Time is an API and a set of integrations into other tools that enables the world and, and spatial data to be searched by Travel Time instead of by distance. And crucially, 
we make this available for any mode of transport. So not just looking at driving times, but walking, cycling, and also public transport. Mm -hmm. So what this looks like is instead of calculating an A to B, what we enable a user to do is calculate A to every possible B. So asking questions like, where can I get to within 45 minutes by public transport, leaving at my home at 9 a.m.? Mm-hmm. And through our work with, with Esri, we've enabled this functionality to be accessed directly within ArcGIS Pro. So it's more following a network rather than as, as the crow flies distances. Yeah, exactly. Um, you know, people can't move as the crow flies. We can't move mm-hmm. in straight lines. So looking at things in terms of distance is not always that helpful. And time is, is a much more valuable metric. Can you tell me a bit more about how the data is brought together and how it's created? Yeah. So looking at the, the public transport side in particular, mm-hmm. what we do is we, we go and hoover up all of the public transport agencies' timetables and data, and we kind of consolidate that all into one holistic view of the public transport network. Um, and sometimes this can be quite straightforward, but most of the time this involves going and processing this data, turning it from sort of formats like a PDF of a timetable into Mm. nice, clean GTFS data, so we can then use that in the model. Um, And some countries, it's it's nice and easy. Some countries, this is a a massive part of what we do. One of the biggest focuses for us and challenges that we've, we've always had to overcome is making the technology as performant as possible at scale. Um, we're now processing over 50 billion locations a month through the API, and the performance and the response times is, is crucial for what our clients are using it to do. Great. Okay. So what kinds of problems are users combining it with ArcGIS to solve? Do you have any of your favorite applications of the content? Yeah, absolutely. So the, the range of different use cases that we see clients use the technology for is, is super broad. Um, mm-hmm. Almost every week, I come across a customer using it in a way that I've never even thought of before. Mm-hmm. Um, because in a way, changing from distance to time is is quite a subtle change, but it can have a massive impact. So, for example, the impact on a sort of individual level might be a patient being allocated to their nearest hospital or their nearest COVID testing center, maybe, mm-hmm. based on how long it will take them to get there instead of distance. And this might mean, rather than being sent from Portsmouth to the Isle of Wight, mm. you'll be sent somewhere where you can actually get to. In terms of kind of impact at the business level, a lot of the, a lot of the decisions that our clients are using the data for are decisions that are going to have a really long payoff period. Things like where to invest in a new warehouse or where to locate dark kitchens across the city. Mm-hmm. These are things that using our data clients can make kind of more informed decisions and yeah the benefits of those can last for a really really long time do you mind telling me what a dark kitchen is chris yes absolutely um (laughs) so yeah a dark kitchen is basically if you were going to order food from you know deliveroo or uber eats Mm -hmm. it may not actually come from an actual restaurant a lot of these restaurants operate what's called a dark kitchen it's a facility specifically for producing food for deliveries I feel like my whole life's been a lie. Never knew that. <laughs> mm-hmm. Just as an add-on to your last point, I work with Travel Time um, data quite often, and and 
personally, my favorite use case that I've seen um, was working with a retail company who had sustainability at the forefront of their development within the organization. And they were using it to locate their existing staff locations in a certain area that worked on shift basis. Um, and then trying to communicate the different routes that they were currently using to get to the warehouse and using that to leverage local bus service providers to put on more routes in some of those hard to reach areas. Sustainability is actually really common along as we see um, because enabling businesses to use public transport data and multimodal data like we have a, a driving and train model for example enables them to to make decisions not just based around driving times. So in terms of future development, where can you see travel times as an organization or the content? Where can you see development going? So one of our kind of key philosophies, I guess, is to make sure our, our data and our tools are available wherever someone might want to use them. Mm -hmm. And in terms of the kind of the Esri stack, we currently have an integration into ArcGIS Pro, but we want to make sure that it's, it's usable for, for all Esri users, whatever tools they might be using. Mm -hmm. um, so, for example, we're looking at um, an ArcGIS Online integration, which would enable maybe those more sort of business users to use our tools. The Pro add-in is great for doing those more complicated pieces of analysis that require mm -hmm. like really deep GIS knowledge. But our technology is equally valuable at answering some of those maybe more high-level business questions around you know, Salesforce planning or yeah. um, marketing and that kind of thing. And having an integration into ArcGIS Online would enable mm. those those business users to, to get value out of the tool. Definitely. And we've seen such a huge uplift in software as a service offering. So the fact that you guys aren't just a content, you know, partner and that we deliver travel time data to our users, but you're also working with us to integrate into the platform. It's a really valuable partnership. Yeah, absolutely. And that's the benefit of it being an API is yeah. that the API can be used you know, in any different tool, anything where you would traditionally search by distance, but actually yeah. searching by time gives you much more relevant results. Great, great. Thank you very much. That was a really interesting discussion from yourself, Hannah and Chris, and massive thank you to Chris for um, going into some of the details of the applications of that data. And I think really what we've learned across this episode is there's no limit to your imagination in terms of how you use data to solve a particular problem. Absolutely, it comes back to my, my point right at the beginning about data is definitely that base to the GIS cake. The jam element is perhaps doing the data wrangling and getting it to that perfectionist piece. So it's that perfect data, which is the jam bit. And I'd say the icing is about then how we apply that and share that to all of our users um, in things like the Living Atlas where people can make more use of it. Thanks to everyone for listening. We'd love to hear what you think. So please do get in touch at podcast at esriuk.com and don't forget to subscribe and rate us on your chosen podcast channel. It really does make a difference. We'll hope you join us again. The views of the presenters may differ from those of Esri UK. I really want another bourbon. It's unfair to eat in front of people that are bored. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's true. I've already eaten all my shortbread today, so you can't have it. <laughs>